Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. As a quick aside, um, I I had a listen back to the recording last week and it it struck me that it sounded like I was uh, half whispering, (laughs) Uh, certainly spoke a little bit differently to normal and um, there was a very good reason for that. I was actually staying in somebody else's home and it was about six o'clock in the morning and I was conscious of not waking everybody up. So uh, if I sounded a bit strange last week, (laughs) that's the explanation. Anyway, less of that. I would say an advantage of having some of these out-of-series soundbite episodes is the flexibility to dive into topical issues. And this week, the subject of risk has been knocking at my door from various quarters. Not for me personally, but for people that I have encountered. Um, Actually, it's happened over the last few weeks or so. Something's been telling me I need to address it. So today we shall have a, a little chat about risk, along with its buddies, uncertainty and fear as we understand a little bit of uh, what it's about and then what we can do about them. Here we go then. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Okay then, so we're going to be talking about risk along with uncertainty and fear, which often go hand in hand and they're part of the same equation or the same problem, if you like. First of all, let's just take a a look at a a couple of classic uh, dictionary definitions of risk. First of all, from the Oxford Dictionary, which defines risk as a situation involving exposure to danger. And from the Cambridge Dictionary, let's even things out a bit, the possibility of something bad happening. (laughs) Actually, the possibility of something bad happening sounds like a Donald Trump type of uh, definition, isn't it? So uh, anyway, I think both of them come come at the same place, really. So it's a situation involving some sort of exposure to danger or something bad happening. So pretty cheerful, eh? But as humans, originally coming from caveman, cavemen and women, roving or roaming through uh, treacherous landscapes full of wild animals and other dangers, we are in fact hardwired to respond to danger with a fight or flight response. In these days, uh, if we encounter danger, we're we're unlikely to uh, start a fight unless we're cornered. Uh, or we're more likely to run away instead. So um, I think there's a slight difference, even though that we're pre-programmed. Um, and, and of course, the, the reaction is still with us today, even if we are more civilized, experienced, and generally speaking, don't have to fear being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. But just to consider uh, a situation, um, if you like, right now, if you just picture the moment, if someone cuts you up on the road, you're driving and somebody cuts you up, or perhaps if you feel like you're being followed on the street in the dark, or if someone starts yelling in your face. Yes, I'm sure that, I hope you haven't been in too many of those situations, but the situations like that, just picture for a minute, cast your mind back to perhaps where you've been in that sort of situation. We might recognize that feeling where our heart rate rises, our hands get sweaty or other parts of our body for that matter, and we start to get ready for fight or flight or run away uh, as an alternative to flight. 
So I looked up uh, adrenaline and how it affects our bodies. And this is what uh, the hormone network had to say about it. Uh, adrenaline triggers the body's fight or flight response. This reaction causes air passages to dilate to provide the muscles with oxygen they need to either fight, danger or run away. Adrenaline also triggers the blood vessels to contract to redirect blood toward major muscle groups including heart and lungs. The body's ability to feel pain also decreases as a result, which is why we can continue running from or fighting danger even when we're injured. Adrenaline causes a noticeable increase in strength and performance, as well as heightened awareness in stressful times. After the stress has subsided, adrenaline's effect can last for up to an hour. Indeed, it goes on to talk about the problems of too much adrenaline as well. Adrenaline is an important part of your body's ability to survive, but sometimes the body will release the hormone when it is under stress, but not facing real danger. This can create feelings of dizziness, lightheadedness and vision changes. Also, adrenaline causes a release of glucose, which a fight or flight response would use. When no danger is present, that extra energy has no use and this can leave the person feeling restless and irritable. Excessively high levels of the hormone due to stress without real danger can cause heart damage, insomnia and a jittery nervous feeling. It's getting even more cheerful, isn't it, this? Um, but I just think, you know, the key word there was without stress, without real danger. Perhaps we just hold that thought as we go through. Okay, but let's pause for a minute here and, uh, and summarize a little bit. We are pre-programmed to look out for danger. If we identify danger, our bodies tend to react to this stress physically by releasing adrenaline. Adrenaline helps us to get ready to fight or flight or run away, in other words, as I mentioned. Stress-induced adrenaline can lead to some unpleasant or unwanted physical and medical side effects. So two things should now be apparent from where we've got to so far. The first is we have different levels of awareness and tolerance to danger or stress. And second, we almost can't help ourselves but to follow this process, especially when we sense real danger. The first point is often related to uncertainty and fear in situations other than a real danger of personal harm or injury. In situations of real danger, if say we're being attacked, then our fight or flight response is actually very helpful. However, if we're not in any real physical harm, then our response could actually be unhelpful. Of course, what some may feel as dangerous, others may not. And this gives rise to our different attitudes to risk that's why some people are thrill seekers, throwing themselves out of aeroplanes or off cliff tops with parachutes on their backs, and others just check the crime statistics before visiting a new country. I'm sure you might identify with perhaps one or other end of that uh, polar scale, and I'm sure that there are lots of variations in the middle as well. So we've got different levels of comfort with risk, or a risk tolerance, or an attitude to risk, if you prefer. The second point is all about control. If our bodies automatically jump into fight or flight mode, adrenaline is released and quite often we can't help but experience certain physical responses. However, we can learn to mentally and emotionally control our physical reactions to help bring us out of a stressful state and back to a normal state where we can think more clearly and maybe not punch someone in the face instead. 
Yeah, okay, I'm going a little bit far with that illustration, but you know what I'm saying. So we've got different abilities in how we control how we react to risk too, which is a kind of risk management. In other words, if we understand our risk tolerance or appetite and practice our risk management, then we should be able to better manage our personal risk profile and how we, act, we react to risk. Most people do all of this unconsciously. And so I like to help make this a process, if you like, a little bit more conscious or front of mind or considered. And this means deliberately thinking about what our attitude to risk is. Could be low, medium or high at the basic level. There's lots of scales. People score you on a, on a scale of 1 to 5, on a scale of 1 to 10. What's your risk appetite? But you get the picture. And also how we tend to manage or control risk in our, in our lives. What do we tend to do? Do we just worry and end up doing nothing? Or do we overanalyze to the state of inaction uh, or pro you know, procrastination and just inaction, inertia? In terms of investing, as with the rest of our lives, risk does exist. Let's not hide from the fact. Here is a definition of risk from an investment point of view taken from Investopedia. Risk involves the chance of an investment's actual return being, uh, being different to the expected return. Risk includes the possibility of losing some or all of the original investment. And there's also the risk-reward trade-off to consider. And this usually suggests that in order to compensate investors for taking a higher risk, a higher level of reward also needs to be offered. And whilst it's not always true that we can judge an investment's level of risk by the potential reward available, it is a useful indicator. It, it's certainly true that where there is low uh, risk, there is usually low return as well and vice versa. So with these considerations in mind, our appetite for risk, along with our wish or indeed need for reward, we need then to be able to measure the level of risk involved. Well, first of all, we need to understand it and then measure the level of risk involved. And then we need to put some steps um, in place to control or manage the risk. Spoiler alert here, there is no such thing as a totally risk-free investment. So let's get used to that idea that we will need to practice some level of risk management and some level of risk management as well. Uh, sorry, measurement and management as well. Before I move on, I do wish to say that there are also some risks that are either not real or are so low that they can stifle us into fear and inaction, as I alluded to. And this means we need an ability of understanding it and then testing to see how real it is. And this leads me on nicely to a four-step process that we could adopt to better understand and manage our investment risk. So in assessing risk, we need to do the following four things. First, we need to identify and understand what the risks are. Second, we need to try and establish how likely they are to happen. Third, to assess the impact of them on us if they do actually happen. And fourth, what steps we could take to control, manage or just accept these risks. And this should be a conscious or thoughtful exercise. And hold that thought as well. <laughs> That said, I, I could argue that there are dozens, if not hundreds, of potential risks that we could consider with any investment and, uh, and property is no exception. 
whilst the likelihood of the sky falling in is a risk, it's not a very high risk based on several thousands of years where the, this planet has not seen the sky fall in so far. So we do have to accept that some risks are just so low or remote that we either need to ignore them or potentially just insure for them instead. Insurance, incidentally, is a form of risk management. I cannot go into too much detail about all the potential risks that we might encounter in property investing. However, here's a couple of examples we might need to be aware of uh, or we might, we might encounter along the way, along with a sense of their likelihood, the impact and some potential risk management uh, controls or suggestions we could apply to them. First of all, what if interest rates go up? Well, what, what, what could it mean? This is mainly relevant when we use a mortgage to fund our property purchase. So if we're paying cash, perhaps we can ignore it. But if, if interest rates do rise and we are using a mortgage, then so too could our mortgage payments and, uh, and so too potentially could our buy-to-let rental profits reduced. So the impact of this is if interest rates rise by a certain level, we could actually end up in a loss situation if we cannot fund these losses uh, or reductions in, um, uh, in, in, in our profitability. And if, if that's the case, of course, it could lead to the threat of property repossession. Well, that's a pretty significant risk, isn't it? A loss of repossession if interest rates rise. So what's the likelihood of that happening? Well, if we have a look at interest rates over the last 20 years, we'll see that they do fluctuate, yes, but they're not usually highly volatile and make huge jumps in the short term. Rarely have we seen major jumps over a short period of time, but we have seen them trend up and trend down or remain stable for reasonable periods of time. There's an element of uh, predictability or uh, uh, you know, uh, planning that we can take around them, that's for sure, if we look back over history. So let's get the facts before us, uh, before we live in fear of them jumping up and catching us out, first of all. Now, the Bank of England now also requires that mortgage lenders stress test our ability to service a mortgage based on 145% rental coverage at a rate of around about 3% above our fixed rate or the standard variable rate in general terms. And this is a, a tightening up, if you like, of, uh, of mortgage lending that's happened uh, since the financial crisis. I, I've been arguing that we should always have a, lev a level of stress test uh, in our um, uh, calculations in any case, but uh, this 145% rule and the 3% above our, our lending rate or standard variable rate rule actually takes it up a, a notch further, I would suggest. And this is, in fact, another form of risk management that is, has been imposed upon us for our own good. <laughs> But it's likely that we will see, um, sorry, is it likely that we'll see interest rates rise by, say, 3% in a year? Well, the history over the last 20 years would suggest not. However, if you have a memory or insight into the 1970s, say, you may recall that on a couple of occasions it has happened. So once or twice in around 50 years is the uh, likelihood um, of, of that uh, happening. Um, let's see. Of course, I should also point out that inflation and indeed wages have also tended to rise following periods of higher interest rates too. Interest rates too. I mean, I'm not sure about the causation, but quite simply, if we've got high interest rates, then we've got higher costs in the economy and there's going to be a drive on inflation and therefore wages to, to catch up. And that's usually what happens. Wages tend to rise as well, albeit with a slight lag. And 
But this means our tenants should then be able to have higher wages and then be able to afford some rental increases, which we might need to put in place to offset the rising cost of our mortgage. So keep that in mind. So what are the risk management suggestions that we could adopt in this situation of higher interest rates? Well, first of all, we could fix our mortgage rate for as long as we come comf uh, can comfortably afford. You might notice that the longer we tend to fix, the higher the rate. So there is a trade-off here in terms of the cost versus the risk management. Personally, I usually favor a five-year fixed rate unless I plan to sell a property before then. I've sometimes gone for lesser terms, um, you know, three years, for example, but I'm, I'm really managing that, uh, particularly if I can get away with um, uh, renewing with an existing lender without additional fees. So perhaps the, the loss of the um, fee for switching mortgage to a new provider might compensate for taking a slightly reduced fixed rate term. But I kind of digress into my personal financing strategy, but I think you get the point. You fix long, it will reduce your, your risk of exposure to interest rates like rising. We could also set aside a contingency in case rate, rates go up to fund a short-term gap. So if we took, a, let's say, a two-year fixed rate, which I, by the way, I think is the worst thing to do <laughs> unless we're planning to sell the property after two years, but we could set aside a contingency fund to provide in case that were to happen. So that would, that would be an example of where I might go for that. But there's other reasons why I don't go for two years. But again, I digress into my personal financing strategy. But we, we could probably expect to see some level of rental increase as well to offset any potential risk of interest rates rising, especially over extended or longer periods of time as well. So, you know, it, 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 you know in eight years, if interest rates rise, we probably have seen some inflation and wages rising and therefore rents have gone up as well. So there, there's a bit of a trade off there, too. So that's the first one I wanted to cover. And you can see now how the process might be um, un unraveled as we go through. And I could go into more detail, but um, I I'm not going to. <laughs> the second area I wanted to talk about is uh, potentially we might get ripped off by insert blank in a property deal and insert blank. You just just whatever sort of person you might be dealing with in property. So first in property, we either need to or want to deal with several different types of people be that agents to professional advisors to contractors and so on. Someone might deliberately or indeed negligently let us down, which could result in us losing some money or face another type of risk. An example might be a deal sourcer misrepresenting a great property project or a surveyor getting a property valuation wrong. Um, so what could this mean? Well, with the example of a deal sourcer misrepresenting a property deal, we could either discover it and withdraw, but be left with certain abortive costs, or not discover it and be landed with a lemon property instead. And with a poor valuation, we may find that we cannot resell the property for what we actually paid for it. And in terms of the impact, well, I kind of touched on it to some extent. We might be left with some abortive costs and, and potential loss of any sourcing fee. So it could cost us some money. Um, we could end up holding a property that does not perform as we were told it would. And um, the impact could range from the loss of a few thousand pounds in fees to being stuck with a property that we cannot get finance on or cannot sell what we paid for it, for example. And we need to look at the impact in each case to fully understand it and then quantify it. As you, as you can see, I'm just touching on the surface a, a little bit here. But equally, I'm not saying that you spend three days working out this either. So we've got to strike a balance. In terms of likelihood, well, it largely depends on two things I've found in this sort of situation. 
The first is the character and the values of the people involved. And that's key. And the second is the level of regulation and redress that they are controlled by. In cases where we deal with professionals, such as a surveyor, they, they should be qualified, registered and indeed insured to undertake their work. And so this does act as a kind of external risk management control mechanism. That's quite a sentence, isn't it? That we can take comfort in. Um, as a, We shouldn't really absolve ourselves of any responsibility, but we can lean on the fact that there's, they're professionally qualified and maybe there's a body we could fall back on to complain to or to get redress from. However, that said, uh, leading up to the last housing crash, there are some cases of valuers getting their valuations wrong and even the odd few acting fraudulently or corruptly. Uh, the, the numbers were, were small, certainly in the latter case. And of course, you know, when you've got a downturn in the market, who can actually see it coming? You know, it was perhaps something that you know, it's just happened, let's say, in, in a number of cases. But it's the, it's the fraudulent ones that we need to be uh, aware of. So in the case of non-professionals or where there isn't this sort of external body, there's less external control over what people uh, can do. And so therefore, there's a greater likelihood of them turning out to be rogues and ripping us off. I'm not saying if they're not professionals or not controlled by some sort of industry body that they will automatically rip us off. I'm just saying that there's less controls there. And so therefore, there's more responsibility on us to look into them and do some background checks. So that leads me on to what kind of risk management suggestions we might adopt here. Well, the first one is to use people that are members of professional or industry bodies and with some sort of redress scheme as far as possible. These external bodies do help to reduce our risk, but do not absolve us, as I keep saying, from our personal responsibility to make further checks. And indeed, just one watchword there is actually check that they are registered uh, on the on the sort of uh, website concerns. So for a solicitor, check that they're, they're listed on the SRA website. Um, so um, some people have been caught out but by people pretending to be charlatans, if you like, things they're not. Anyway, the second thing, of course, is to do some background checks on the people that we're working with. The very simplest level is just to Google them. Um, so Google them and look beyond the first page uh, because you can bury some bad news by putting out uh, more information. So look a couple of pages in and see if you can find any uh, any bad, bad news. <clears throat> the odd bad review among lots of good ones is not necessarily a concern, but lots of bad reviews or only bad reviews perhaps is. Equally, seek out references and or social proof of their capabilities. And, and then work with people with experience and indeed a proven track record as far as possible. I'm not saying never work with someone who's not that experienced, but of course, if you do, you're taking on a greater risk of things going wrong if you do that. And finally, document your expectations, uh, any agreements, and include some provisions or conditions for a refund or return of fees if paying in advance for services offered. Um, you know, for example, with deal sources, they normally say, give us the money up front and you, know, you can't have your money back under any conditions. I normally negotiate those terms and have some kind of sensible uh, due diligence period or condition if, if things aren't what they were presented to me to be the case that the fee can be refunded, that kind of thing. The third uh, area I wanted to discuss today, and I could consider quite a lot, so if you've got one in mind, drop me a line and we'll kick it around and uh, see what we think to the, together. But the third one I wanted to talk about was perhaps overpaying for a property. And if we buy a property, we want to know that it's worth what we're paying for, or perhaps even less, of course. Uh, but what could it mean? Well, if we overpay for a property, we might lose money if we then try to resell it, or we may reduce our returns if we get our sums wrong. 
We could also be stuck with the property or even have a reduced valuation for a mortgage if we've overpaid for it. And the impact of this is, of course, the loss of some of our capital or investment performance, which goes back to my definition of, uh, of risk that we were talking about earlier. But equally, it could have uh, some reduced lending capability. So we might need to put more money into the transaction. I've seen situations, by the way, where I've had what's called a down valuation, which I disagreed with. Well, um, you've got a couple of choices there. You can appeal. I've rarely seen uh, a valuation overturned, to be quite honest, with a lender. Um, or you can put more cash in the deal or you could walk away. In that particular, in those particular cases where I've seen it happened, I've been pretty confident that um, my valuation was correct because I've done my own research, which is another thing to keep in mind, of course. And of course, the, the third impact is we're unable to resell the property. So what's the likelihood of these things happening? Well, if we're buying on the open market, so we've got lots of people, we've got competition effectively, and we have a survey or evaluation done, then the chances are low that we'll be committed to taking on an overvalued property. I'm not saying that they won't happen, but we've got a greater chance of, uh, of it uh, not happening. But once we remove these sort of external controls, then unless we undertake certain checks, we're, we're more likely to see it happening. So what can we do from a risk management point of view? Well, the first thing we can do is we can benchmark prices against recently sold comparables for like-for-like -like properties in the local area. And there's a lot of information on the portals which will give us that information. So go to source, see what's being sold. Not I'm talking about asking prices. I'm talking about sold prices in the, main, in the most part here. Of course, we can get a survey or evaluation done. And we can enlist what I, sorry, enlist what I call a trusted advisor or a professional to assess a property's condition. That might be a builder, for example. And of course, we can undertake some legal checks to using a recognized and suitably qualified solicitor to identify any potential legal risks that, uh, that may crop up along the way as well and affect the valuation of that property. So that's just three potential potential risks, potential potential risks, you know what I mean, that we've covered today. And, um, and some of you might be thinking, I wouldn't do all of what you've been suggesting, Richard, where others might be saying, blimey, Richard, I wouldn't go that. I would go way deeper than that. Of course, that's our own personal risk tolerance or risk appetite speaking. And as I said, it's good to be aware of that as we're all different. Then, of course, we do need to work out how likely a certain issue is of happening in the first place in order to quantify that risk uh, before then trying to evaluate or measure the potential impact it could have on us. Remember that not everything we worry about will actually happen as well. Finally, we should put steps in place that helps us to control or manage these risks according to our desired risk or our, our actual risk profile. However, the most important thing is to do all of this consciously in and in a thoughtful manner. And if we follow these four steps, we should become more aware of the risks that we are taking and our ability to tolerate them um, and to help, to help reduce uncertainty. We should also factually evaluate how likely are they are to happen. So help reduce our fear as a result. Finally, we then determine what steps we can and will take to control and manage these risks, perhaps trading off our returns in the process. It might be the case that we either proceed with greater risk management controls, compromise on our returns by building in additional protection, or even decide not to proceed with investment at all. 
The main thing, though, to keep in mind is to try and eliminate this physiological fight-or-flight stress response that we're pre-programmed or hardwired to carry out. The thought of not knowing what we are facing and also the emotion of fear that something might go wrong that we might experience during our investment activities. By adopting this four-step system or process, we can start to both understand and manage our personal risk and make it more conscious and more rational, rather than unconscious and, of, and perhaps irrational or emotive. I know this might be difficult for some people, more so than others, especially if you're more intuitive or emotional as a person generally. However, if you can at least try or even force yourself to adopt this type of, of approach, this four-step process I'm outlining here, it could help reduce your personal stress. It will also shift you more toward the approach of a professional investor that can identify, measure, and then control their investment decisions. It'll be worth the effort both personally and also from a, an investment performance point of view, I would suggest. And trust me on this, it's something I've learned to deal with myself, um, you know, better over, the, over several decades in business and investing too. Yes, my original tendency was to be more intuitive uh, or emotive, let's say, in my decision making, but I've learned to control and manage that as, as the years have gone by. And I know I could have gone deeper on this topic uh, today, but of course time is limited. And, uh, and indeed, Matthew, my producer, is waiting for the recording as I speak. However, if you want to discuss it further with me, remember that you can email me, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. And if you want to talk to me about anything from today's show, or indeed more generally in property investing, just drop me a line. And of course, the show notes will be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. But for now, all I want to say is thanks very much for listening to me once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.